Hey everyone, I'm Ashton. And I'm Nicole. And welcome to our Atheist Bible Study, where two atheists revisit the Bible stories they grew up on. And spoiler alert, there's more incest this time. Always more incest. (laughs) Always. So, we're going to start with a little housekeeping first. So, in the last episode, I said something along the lines that genetic tests can make you more or less racist, depending on your results. And I got some of that right, and some of that a little bit wrong. So, but the first part of what I said, getting mostly homogenous results can give someone a sense of tribalism, which is this strong feeling that you belong to a particular group. And that's not always a bad thing, but it usually goes hand in hand with this other feeling of othering people who are different from you. So you have a strong dislike for anything that isn't your group. Right. It's kind of like white pride movement. Yeah, like sports teams too. Yeah. You know, if once you pick your favorite football team or whatever, you like hate your rival team. So they have some studies on this where it's not necessarily they gave them a genetic test because these people already knew their identity. But I'm going to go ahead and read the quote from this experiment. So it says, in our first experiment, Jewish and Arab participants read a news article citing a scientific study that either reported high genetic similarities or high genetic differences between both groups. And then it says, when they learned about the genetic differences rather than the similarities, they characterized the other group as more violent, unfriendly, and mean. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think it kind of makes sense with the early early years of studying evolution. Mm-hmm. It seemed like that played into the racism that was already there because people didn't really understand evolution fully and were able to kind of throw this idea that that some groups evolved differently than others, when in reality we all kind of evolved into one you know, human group together and then split off from there. Right, like our only real differences are phenotypic, curly hair and straight hair and skin color, but they, they don't, 99.9% of our DNA is the same. Right. Which leads me to my next point, which is when you take these tests, it can also like strengthen this idea that race is solely based on genetics, which is somewhat true in the sense that, like I said before, people express different phenotypes, curly hair and skin type, but in reality, race is a social construct. And we know that because the idea of race is always changing. So here in America, Mexicans used to be considered whites when they would fill out like the census and forms like that. And we're always changing and adapting this idea of what it means to belong to a racial group. And a good example of this is when Elizabeth Warren claimed to be Native American. And she said that because she got genetic test results back that said that she was Native American. And... Obviously, people got really upset about that, including Native American leaders who told her, no, you're not really Native American because to be Native American, you have to grow up and like you have to be raised with certain traditional values. And you obviously don't have that. Like you are a white lady. Yeah. And then the other part of what I said is the part that I is the part that I got really wrong, which is when I said that if you find out that you have other things mixed in you, that it can make you less racist. I couldn't find anything on the average person with the average amount of internal racism in them but i did find that if you are like a deep racist like a deplorable racist person then finding out that you have other things mixed in you you're not gonna become less racist because of that you're just gonna cry and lament the fact that you're not pure (laughs) european (laughs) and so there actually is a site called stormfront where racists used to go on and chat about their genetic results 
And there was a group of people that studied the threads that where people um, talked about their genetic test results. Oh, also side note, Stormfront was actually founded by a former KKK grand wizard. So, Of course. That gives you an idea of the type of site that it is. So in one of the threads that they were looking at, you know, people are trying to justify and kind of explain away their not desirable results. And so one of the things they talked about was this thing called the mirror test, which is where if you look in the mirror, they said, if you look in the mirror and you see a Jew, then you're Jewish. But if you don't see a Jew, then you're not Jewish. Yeah, it doesn't help, I guess. <laughs> if you're a racist, you're, you're just a racist. And Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I, I think because I was a little bit surprised when you said it at first because it seems to me like, like you said, if you find things that kind of confirm your own beliefs, of course, that's going to make you you more racist. But mm-hmm. I find it unlikely that if you find things that, you know, conflict with your beliefs that you're really going to naturally become just accept that less and- racist. Yeah. yeah. It, it yeah. seems like racism benefits a certain group and therefore is a, a thing that's going to always find ways to confirm itself. Mm-hmm. And so the only way you get that somebody becomes less racist is if they make a conscious choice really to confront the racism or the racist ideas they hold. Yeah. All right. And then if you didn't listen to last or the last episode, we were talking about this because I'm pretty sure it was because Esau marries Canaanite women. And there's like this whole big thing about how his parents hate the Canaanite the, women. The Hittites. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. The Hittites. Well, they're Hittites. They are Canaanites. I, they are Canaanite. But... Yeah. And um, probably because they're racist and they eventually persecute and kill, kill the Canaanites. Yeah. So, we are kind of transitioning over from Isaac's story to Jacob's story, which will be like the next patriarch that we follow around. So Isaac is getting up there in years, and he tells Esau his he goes oldest. Blind, I think, right? Yeah, he's he, oh yeah, good point. He's totally blind, and he tells Esau, his oldest son, to go out and hunt and prepare a meal for him, and then he's going to give him the family blessing, which is. A really big deal to get the to get the blessing. There's only one, and it pretty much is telling God, it's signaling to God, I guess, that this is the son that you favor and you want to receive. You know, like all the gifts of God. Okay. Okay. So Rebecca makes that's important later on. <laughs> so Rebecca makes a plan because she overhears this, and she was told by God that Jacob is supposed to be better son the one that rules over everything and also she just likes him better so she makes a plan he's a mom's, boy. mom's boy so she makes a plan and she tells him to go get the baby goats that they already have and she'll cook the food because she knows how to make it the way isaac likes it and jacob says okay but he points out that he's not as hairy as his brother esau and so if his father touches him for the blessing then he'll know that it's really jacob and not esau because Jacob is hairless or something. And so Rebecca figures out a way to get around this too. She tells him that they'll just skin the baby goats and then they glue it onto his arms and his neck. So they go through with this. Jacob enters the tent and asks for Isaac's blessing. And right away, Isaac is confused because he doesn't understand how one Esau went out and got the food so, got the food so quickly and cooked it, and two, why Esau sounds exactly like Jacob. But... All of this aside, when he touches Jacob and feels the hairy goat arms, he's like, oh, this is obviously Esau because my other son is hairless. So he goes ahead and he gives him the blessing anyway. Yeah, this one I thought was really interesting that 
so Isaac says, come near me that I may feel you, my son, to know that you're really my son Esau or not. He announces that, which it almost seems like Jacob uh, or yeah, Jacob's tried some shit like this before. Like, <laughs> He's like, I've been down this road before. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Jacob's trying to trick me again. Yeah, this whole family is like very, you know, lots of trickery going on. Yeah, they also really belabor the point about the trick that they're doing. Jacob brings it up to his mom as a problem, and then they solve the problem, and then he goes in there, and you know exactly where it's going, but then they have Isaac say that, let me feel you, to know that it's you. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it says he does not did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. Mm-hmm. They really, I guess the readers were going to be confused about how how Isaac didn't know when they already you know, gave you the whole thing. Yeah, and the whole thing feels very Little Red Riding Hood, right? She like, red, Little Red Riding Hood goes in, she sees her grandma, and she's like, oh, grandma, what big eyes you have. What large teeth you have. And he, eyes Yeah, that's like, exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> huh, you sound so much like my other son. And then, you know, yeah. he feels him, and it's like, okay, all right, this is... Definitely got like a nursery rhyme or a mythology feel to it. Also, if, if Esau's so big and manly and hairy, I bet his voice is a solid four octaves lower than Jacob's. Yeah. I'm sure Jacob talks like a little girl. I know. If they wanted to make this more believable, they should have said that he was going deaf and blind. Yeah. Like. <laughs> all right. So, yeah. I mean, okay, but overall, I actually do really like this story because it's giving me what I've wanted this whole time, which is an interesting woman to read about. Rebecca is actually really cool from my perspective because she's taking matter into her own hands. She's fulfilling her own prophecy that Jacob's going to be the better son, deceiving the patriarchy, just, you know, making money moves. I'm like all about that. Yeah. Some of the only dialogue you really get from actual lines that she says, you know? Yeah. Dialogue and actually working against the men of the story. Yeah. Because so, I mean, the next stories that we get into, the women, it's just, they are just literal pawns. They just move wherever their husbands tell them to move. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was kind of nice to read about her before we get into the next couple ones. All right, so immediately after that, Jacob is giving the blessing, just like in a movie or something, Esau comes in, and he realizes that Jacob has just received the blessing that he was supposed to get. And he starts crying in rage. He's begging his father to give him a blessing. He, He says something along the lines of, do you only have one blessing to give? Why can't I get a blessing? And that was my point about there is only one major blessing to give. So he, he, that, that's the reason why Esau doesn't get a similar blessing. So he does get a blessing, but it's like a super generic one, which, you know, you could give anybody really. Yeah, and he also foreshadows Esau is going to break his yoke away from his neck or something like that. He's going to kind of free himself from his brother's power somehow. Right. I don't know what that alludes to. But. Yeah, I, I don't know. Some more prophecies, some more mythology stuff, I think. But yeah, so so Esau gets the generic blessing, and afterwards he's like obviously really upset about everything that went down. So he starts kind of talking aloud to anybody who would listen, I guess, about how he's he's going to kill Jacob to make himself feel better. So Rebecca overhears this, and he she tells Jacob, you know, why don't you go stay with your uncle for a little bit while Esau calms down. He gets sent away to go live with Laban. Yeah, that's what I've been saying. It. Okay. And then as a little side note thing, it, they also mentioned that Esau marries his cousin from 
one of Ishmael's daughter daughters because he thinks that he's having so many problems because he's married to the Canaanite woman and not to God ordained woman. And then again, they mention how annoying the Canaanite women are. <laughs> yeah, again, it's there are points where they point to incest as like a gross negative thing, like mm-hmm. with Lot and his daughters. Mm-hmm. But then also Abraham is married to what his half sister, and then Ishmael is definitely marrying his cousin, mm-hmm. and then uh, Jacob's going to live with his uncle and ends up to marry one mm-hmm. of his daughters. Yeah, yeah. So the the mark seems to be like I don't know half sibling or cousin, first cousin. Right. Cool. Yeah. So on his way to visit his uncle, he like stops in a desert. Yeah. So then he has. A dream. His dream tells him that, you know, he's effectively it's a dream telling him he's chosen by God and God is going to bless him uh, just like he's done before with Isaac and with Abraham. I looked into kind of how this is interpreted and why this is a thing. And it's sort of this idea that each generation has to sort of renew their contract with God. Abraham had the covenant of circumcising himself and that was Mm -hmm. his thing. But each generation really has to start again and God gives him a blessing and renews a contract with them. Yeah. And he even says it as if you do this, then I shall surely worship you basically. Mm-hmm. So chosenness really is still a central theme here. Yes. It's not about these characters really being special in terms of them being righteous, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jacob is really deceptive, mm-hmm. but he's chosen. Yeah. Also, this is where you get the idea of giving one-tenth. I'm not sure if your church talked about that, but oh, yeah. my grandma always talked about the idea of giving a, a tenth of what you have or what you make to the church or something like that. Yeah. In the Catholic church, they actually have, they mail you a check every week that you can make out to the church. Oh, yeah. I've seen that before. Yeah. My, and I remember my parents also always doing that. I feel like they gave $10 every time. Which to me, it just felt That's like... It's a misinterpretation of what that no, was no, supposed no. to be. No, no, no. I know, I know, I know. But like one-tenth Yeah, one-tenth is a lot of money. That's so much. Yeah, it's not feasible. And it's where the word tithing comes from. Tithing actually means one-tenth. Oh. So Jacob sort of invents that idea saying that by saying, I will surely give one-tenth of everything that I have to, to God. Mm. I also was really curious about how many Christians actually do this. Mm-hmm. So it comes out... Now, it's kind of tricky. I don't know how where these numbers come from. I couldn't find anything that was really clear about where the data is coming from and stuff like that that I would consider like a really good resource, like Pew Research Center or something. Yeah. But this is from Christian websites, which I would think they would want to inflate their numbers of anything. Mm-hmm. But they say 3 to 5% of all church-going Christians wow. actually tithe and give a tenth of what they own. And a very large proportion actually give nothing at all. That's, what, that's yeah. of the consistent church-going population, which is less than half of all Christians. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, you can't give my parents flat because they actually did it. There's so many people I know who just kind of passed the basket on. Yeah. Or my parents actually, like, did it consistently every week, so. The next, we have Jacob finding a wife with Laban. Yes. So he visits Laban, and he, I couldn't tell if he immediately falls in love with Rachel or if he just relief to see his cousin because he gives her like a kiss right away and i wasn't sure if that's just like a like oh my god you're my cousin 
I'm so happy to see you again. And he like kisses her or if he was like already in love with her and kisses her. Yeah, I interpreted it as he as he already really liked Rachel. Okay. Yeah, that could be the case. And so so he immediately falls in love with Rachel, who is the youngest daughter. And he works seven years for LeBon to have her hand in marriage. And then on the day of the wedding, LeBon puts a veil over Leia, who is the oldest daughter, because it's kind of out of tradition to give your youngest daughter away before your oldest daughter is married. Yeah. And he gives her to Jacob instead. And then they sleep together. And then in the morning, Jacob realizes that it is not Rachel. And so then he works another seven years to marry Rachel as well. Yep. This one was another one of those bizarre stories too, because Bill even puts a veil over her or whatever. But usually when you know they're wearing a veil, they don't wear it the whole night. So somehow he still didn't know it wasn't Rachel that night when he had sex with her. Yeah, like were you just like that drunk? And if you were that drunk, could you really have sex with her? It's yeah. just it's just like how do you pine after a girl for seven years and then not know you're fucking her sister <laughs> on your wedding night? I think they were just bad at writing myths because I feel like if this was a Greek myth, they would be more specific. They would have some mm-hmm. explanation as to how he didn't know who he was having sex with. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't really have that here. They don't have a, like a you know, more specific explanation than, oh, she was wearing a veil at the wedding. Well, she wasn't wearing it the whole night, probably. Yeah, and was this veil so thick that you, if, if you can't see her face, then she probably can't see through it. So, like, I know about how tall she is, too. That's what I'm thinking. Like, I, have, I have two sisters, and all of us have completely different body types. Mm-hmm. Even if my face was covered up, you would know if you were marrying one of my sisters and not me. Yeah. To me, that either says, like, yeah, she's poorly written, or... This guy kind of knew, I guess I could get two wives out of this. (laughs) Well, for another seven years of work, it turns out. Yeah. (laughs) So long. This whole story, too, is just kind of messed up because they're basically saying after he has sex with Leia that Leia belongs to him. If this were modern day, you would wake up the next morning and be like, this isn't who I was promised. I'm going to marry Rachel. I'm not going to have her as my wife. Mm-hmm. But they're very clearly sending this message that it can't be that way because now Leia is damaged goods if you're going off of purity culture. Yeah. So she, she can't marry anybody else because she's already, have se- she's already had sex with this one man. Yeah, and I think there's also at the time there was a very close connection between sex and just becoming married i think they say with isaac when he when uh he meets rebecca he took her into his mother's tent and she became his wife right the act of having sex made her his wife yeah i think that's just a different under i don't know what their ceremonies were like at the time but sex was the central thing that makes someone their wife Mm -hmm. yeah and it's very clear that this only applies to women Yes. Yeah, in the beginning of this episode, we started talking about how race is a a social construct, and so is virginity. There is nothing inherently more special about your first time, unless you want it to be that way, you know, unless you really put that emphasis on it. But after you have sex for the first time, you're not any different, you're not changed, you're not older or anything like that. You just had Mm -hmm. one more experience in life that you hadn't had before. Yeah, I think, I think first time experience for anything can always be like exciting. It has some something associated with it being your first your first time. It's going to be memorable, but there's nothing inherent or uh, concrete about that. It is what you make of it, I guess, and I think our society makes too much of it. Definitely. So yeah, he worked seven years for Leia, not knowing it was Le- going to be Leia. Works another seven years for Rachel, and then it goes on to talk about all the 
children that they have. Rebecca was barren to begin with, mm-hmm. and Leah was having all these children. Not Rebecca, Rachel. Oh, I, I keep mixing them up. Yeah, Ra- yeah, Rachel was barren. Leah's having lots of children, but she's unloved because mm-hmm. he always loved Rachel. Yeah, so basically it says that God closes Rachel's womb. Yes, so that Leah can get some love, I guess. Yes, and so this happens a lot, actually, where God uses this as a form of punishment for women, which doesn't fit the case here, but so he'll he'll close a woman's womb so they can't have children, and then he'll open it again when they've, you know, reformed or whatever, when he finds favor with them again. Yeah. But with Rachel, it doesn't make sense because it's basically she's just loved more by her husband. And to me, that's not like a sin or she didn't do anything wrong. She had no hand in that. She just loved more because that's who he originally wanted to marry in the first place. Right. And then Leia just kind of got stuck into the situation. I mean, really what this does is it just places a ton of emphasis, again, on women just being baby makers. Yeah. It's the ultimate punishment by God for him to close your womb so you can't have children. Because well, now you're useless, I guess, right? Right. And then we see it with Leia, too, who is just saying, given him son after son, maybe he'll love me more now. And there's nothing in the Bible that says that he began to have more feelings for Leia because she was giving him children. Yeah. So, no, it's really sad, actually. So yeah, Leia keeps giving him sons, and eventually Rachel gets fed up, so she decides to give Jacob her maid. And then Leia does the same thing, and I think they both do this like twice, which is upsetting because, again, this is rape. There's no, There can't be consent here because we're assuming that these are servants or slaves, so there's definitely a power imbalance, and we have no idea if they are attracted to Jacob or if they want to sleep with Jacob. It's basically... in. They just don't have a say in it either way. Yeah. I'm also not convinced of the idea of Rachel supposedly giving the maid. I imagine there are a lot of patriarchs of the time who have multiple wives and have some maids. And then all of a sudden the maids get pregnant. Right. And then Mm -hmm. this is the story of my wife couldn't bear children and and she wanted to have children. So she gave me the maid. There's a story they're, they're telling here about the patriarchs who you see with pregnant maids. To sort of justify that situation. Yeah, and I, I, when I was reading this, I was thinking about The Handmaid's Tale, which I'm pretty sure is heavily based off of not only this passage, but there's a couple other passages in the Bible too where maid is given to the husband because the woman is barren. And it, it just irks me that it's in here and this is rape. And this is why it bothers me and kind of scares me when people push so strongly for there to be more religion and government when there are things like this in the Bible. And that's kind of like, that's the whole thing that the Handmaid's Tale talks about is the government kind of becomes overrun by these overly religious people just condoning things that I just don't think should be be condoned. Right. Again, it's this Christian idea that you need the Bible to show you how to be moral and how to, how to do the right thing. And then when you bring up things like this, all of a sudden it's uh, it's a product of the time and the Bible just is reflecting the ideals of the time and we don't need to live by that anymore. Mm-hmm. Those two things are, are not really compatible. Yeah, I mean, okay, so I'm okay if you're, I guess, the kind of person who's like, everything is a metaphor and written by man and we don't really take this stuff seriously. Just ultimately, I believe you should love others and believe in God. I think what we're really critiquing here is fundamentalists who look at this as a perfect 
book yeah. that explains exactly how you should live your life. Yeah. One of the uh, interesting line I find here is the very end, God remembers Rachel and finally mm-hmm. gives her a son. And it almost seems like he wasn't even mad at her. He was just like, oh, yeah, I closed Oh, you wanted that. to have kids, yeah. too. <laughs> okay. Okay, so one thing I want to ask you about is, so what do, you, what do you think about polygamy in the Bible? How that, whether it is meant to say that polygamy should be a thing or... Yeah. That's kind of an interesting question because certainly today, Christians speak very anti-polygamy. Yeah. Right. They're anti really any kind of relationship that's outside of a very specific man and woman. But they, they definitely don't support polygamy anymore, with the exception of, of certain fundamentalist Mormons. Mm-hmm. And they, they level this attack pretty heavily against Muslims. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll be clear, I don't support the Muslim religion either because it's basically the same religion. Right. But Christian attacks on Muslims are are certainly racially motivated more yeah. than anything else. Yes. But I did a lot of research on the history of polygamy and the Christian and Jewish ideas about polygamy. Certainly, the patriarchs were obviously polygamous mm-hmm. in the Bible. Certainly, the early books of the Bible had polygamous people in them. And that's kind of hard for Christians to deny that God's chosen people work polygamous right they can't deny it it's there and so they have to find a way to either explain it away or accept it yeah it, and they choose to explain it away <laughs> specifically what, what was going on was polygyny which is one man multiple women right there wasn't any situation where it was one woman and multiple husbands right which would be polyandry mm-hmm. which interestingly is illegal in universally almost every n- nation of the world Polyandry is illegal, but polygyny is not illegal in necessarily all places. Hmm. So some of the the Christian workarounds for the idea that the Bible tells them that polygamy is not okay Mm -hmm. were the idea that Adam, he had one wife, right? Adam, one wife, which again, the first part of Genesis implies there were multiple men and women. But, you know, okay, I I guess Mm -hmm. that's a reasonable argument. Well, they don't they just base that off of the fact that it, it says God made woman to be a companion to man. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems to me that could just be an accident of God just made one and then they're all supposed to, to fall out of that. But yeah, but they kind of like extrapolate that and use that. As, all right. So God intended it to just be a man and a woman forever right. and always. Every couple should be that way. Yeah. Also, they make this the point that. Polygamy doesn't really work out for all the patriarchs, right? There's a lot of conflict with Leia and and Rebecca or Leia and Rachel mm-hmm. and some of the other early polygamists in the Bibles have these disastrous ends that seem to associate with this these disastrous ends that seem to be a result of their polygamy. Which is so funny because everybody knows plenty of monogamous relationships that don't work out and are disastrous and not good for either person. Yeah, and I mean, Adam and Eve's relationship was somewhat disastrous. Wait, how so? Well, in the whole Garden of Eden thing, right? Like, oh, right. You could yeah. argue oh, that was yeah, disastrous. Yeah. Oh my gosh, a, yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> it's whenever it works, I guess. Also, if we're just judging whether something is a good thing or not by the result of it, again, the patriarchs all do deceptive things that almost anybody would say is wrong, and then it works out great for them because God chooses them yeah so if we're gonna say that whether or not somebody's actions are right or wrong or based on what god in the early bible does to them as a result 
then we're getting a very mixed message on what morality looks like. There's also another point in Genesis where they say that when men and women marry, they become one flesh, which gets requoted in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is really specific about it. Mm -hmm. But I still don't think this really says anything about the idea that man and woman can become one flesh in marriage and still become one flesh with multiple women. You know, I don't see how that is a specific statement. There's nothing in there that says they were sinning by being polygamous, which would be an easy thing to write into it. Yeah. It chooses very specifically not to outlaw or condemn polygamy. Yeah. Personally, I, I don't see anything wrong with polygamy. And I think, like, I don't think it makes it inherently less successful if you're a polygamist versus being monogamous. I think there's issues with both. Okay, but could you ever see yourself being polygamous or polyamorous? I, I don't know. I, just, I, I guess I would go with yes, just from the sense of I think most of our ideas about what we're okay with and what we're comfortable with really come out of just what we've been raised with and what ideas have been drilled into our head by our culture. Okay, wait, so it's a yes that you would be down to be in a polyamorous I'm not saying I'd be down. I'm saying that without the influence of my upbringing and without okay. like social influence, that might be very different. I think it's not me naturally saying that I'm not comfortable with myself or with you having other partners. That might just be a social aspect. Yeah, I agree with you that it's something that we're kind of conditioned with. But so, okay, so for me, it's a no. And that's just because I don't want to take the time to work through all of that and unpack everything that I was conditioned to think about relationships and jealousy and how I should feel about like you finding other women attractive or being with other women intimately. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to take the time to work through that with you. And also, so I listened to Kevin Patterson, who is a, he, he has a wife, but they're both polyamorous. So they both have girlfriends and boyfriends. And I'm comfortable with the idea of other people being polyamorous or even polygamous. I just, when they talk about it, it sounds like so much work to me. Like I said earlier about like just unpacking your own personal baggage, but also scheduling and communicating with all those different people. I just personally don't feel like I have the time in my life to sit down and make a working, functional polyamorous relationship. Yeah, I think that's why true polyamory is relatively new and pretty rare still because it takes a concerted effort to be open and understanding and honest and have sort of a, uh, the, a an appropriate set of boundaries or mm -hmm. something like that. Whereas polygyny, which is what this is talking about and which I am against, I think it's it's sexist and does not promote equality between men and women in a relationship mm -hmm. is relatively simple right because you have one man and at the end of the day he's just he's just in charge and this is how everything is how he wants it to be right and the women are just you know there to produce offspring for him yeah but uh, going back to the history of this what i think really is the reason that polygamy goes away in christianity ultimately comes down to just the changes in a change in culture right so in greek in Greece and ancient Rome, monogamy was the norm. Mm -hmm. They were anti-polygamy. And in Rome, it was actually the law that you could not marry more than one woman. And that was rare for the time. Greeks and Romans are, are obviously known as being relatively progressive. And that was, they, they, were, they were pretty unusual in the ancient world for having an explicit stance on monogamy okay. or on polygamy. 
So it was sort of a distinguishing feature. And right about that time is essentially when polygamy starts to fall out of favor among Christians as well. Mm -hmm. Jews, it takes a little bit longer. Around the 11th century is when Rabbi Gershorn B. Judah expressly expressly prohibits polygamy among Jews. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas essentially from the beginning of the Catholic Church, monogamy was called out as being the requirement, really. Okay, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, because, like, in a bi- biology class that I took in college, they were talking about, I want to call it, like, polygamy in animals because they don't get married. But you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Like, okay. So, with animals, you can, there's, like, a clear trend between which animals are polygamous and which animals are monogamous. And it has to do with the size of the male and the females. And so, animals like elephant seals, spotted hyenas, and gorillas, they are polygamous because there's one gender that's bigger a lot bigger than the other gender and normally it's the male but in our favorite animal the spotted hyena is actually the female and so with humans it's thought that we used to be polygamous because there used to be a a bigger size difference between males and females but as time has gone on that difference has shrunk a little so like in most cases men are like a little bit taller than women but we're getting closer to the same size. So there's some theories that we have developed to be monogamous, or that could just be what you were saying before, where we just started to choose monogamy. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because a lot of people try to make the point that monogamy isn't natural, and so we shouldn't expect it of people Mm -hmm. to be in monogamous relationships. Yeah, I kind of thought that biological theory was interesting. Yeah, another interesting side note about polyandry Mm-hmm. Sort of the anthropological slash biological theory of why polygamy is more popular in, in certain areas and monogamy is more popular in other areas. And then the few areas that polyandry exists, why it exists there, comes down to like birth rates. Mm-hmm. So polygamy allows for higher birth rates right? because if you have one man and multiple women, right, they can birth babies at a much faster rate. Right. Uh, whereas if you have a polyandrous society, the birth rate is much lower. For one woman, it's nine months before mm-hmm. she's going to be, you know. On to the next man. Yeah. Well, she could be on to the next man, but it's not going to produce another child. Right. So the idea is that in areas where they need higher birth rates when they're trying to grow their population, polygamy becomes more popular. Uh, whereas the few areas where polyandry exists, it's generally like maybe a harsher living environment or they they it can't support a large population. Mm-hmm. So they polyandry controls the population size and they invest a lot into their offspring mm. to increase the survival rates of fewer offspring. Right. And then monogamy is obviously somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So after they A little have... bit of a side, side train there. <laughs> yeah, we went on that for a while. So did we already talk about Rachel having a child already? Yes. Okay. We're on to Jacob. So Okay, so now Jacob has like all the kids he could ever want, and he wants to leave um, Laban and go back to his hometown. Yeah, so he pulls this mischievous little trick where he's ready to leave, and Laban basically tells him he's not going to give him anything. And Jacob says, hey, you know, I've worked for you for a long time. I've done a lot for you. How about I just take the speckled or spotted goats and sheep amongst your herd? Mm-hmm. And there's not that many of them. So Laban says, okay, whatever, go ahead and do that. 
So then uh, Jacob goes out to the fields and places these, what did he say? Like rods? Yeah, and these rods. The re- I think they're reeds. strips them? Yeah. Takes these reeds and he puts them into, he puts them near where all the animals go to drink, which is also where they go to breed. Mm-hmm. And they're rods of different colors so that when the animals see those colors, supposedly that's what color their their offspring will will be mm-hmm. according to Jacob. So he does that and then that causes them to breed more speckled and striped goats and sheep and he also chooses to only do that with the ones that are stronger among the flock mm-hmm. that he gets all the strong and he leaves all the weak for Laban. What a what a great guy. <laughs> this part is so funny to me cuz I feel like I've seen so many things or people be like, I'm a scientist, but I still believe in God. And here's why. And it's like, oh, you just have like a really strong cognitive dissonance. That's how you were able to do that. Yeah. Because the things like this in the Bible, no self-respecting scientist should look at this and be like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. The thing that gets me about this story, too, is that later on, I don't I think it's when Laban comes after him. Mm-hmm. He tells him Laban gets really mad and acts like he stole from him. And Jacob says, no, no, I told you we made a deal. Mm-hmm. And then God loves me. So he decided to give a bunch of speckled and striped goats right after Jacob tells this whole story of how where he it manipulated tells this, the whole thing. Yeah. It's like, what, what is this science or is this supernatural? Tell me which one it is. Mm-hmm. So after that, Jacob flees because uh, he knows Laban's mad that he got all the sheep. Yeah. And, and right before they leave, Rachel takes the time to steal her father's gods. And so when Laban comes after them and catches up to them, he brings up that his gods have been stolen. And so Jacob doesn't know who took it. So he tells him that whoever took the gods, he'll kill them on the spot. And so Laban searches the whole campsite for his gods and Rachel hides them by sitting on them. And when her father comes into the tent, he like, is still sitting on them, and she tells him, sorry, I didn't get up for you. I'm on my period. And so he, she gets away with that. And This is where Rachel becomes a feminist icon. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> she invented the period excuse. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, let, my, let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That one's going to come up in PE class. So... He goes back and he's like, yeah, I, guess I couldn't find them. And so then Jacob gets angry and is like, you know, why are you accusing us of stealing your gods? And, and eventually they come to this compromise that they're just not going to cross each other's paths again. To me, it feels like the story is like really heavily edited. Is the point of this story is period excuses are God sanctioned? It just feels like she should have gotten caught or, you know, Jacob should have found out later that she was the one that took the gods. Something comes from that. There's all this setup, and then nothing happens. It just feels like somebody took out the good parts. Otherwise, like, why are you giving me this story? Yeah. This story would have made more sense if it was Rebecca, somehow to me, because Rebecca... Wait, his mom? Yeah. So sometimes the Bible likes to set up characterizations, and you know, Rebecca deceives Isaac to uh, make... Yeah. Jacob, the chosen son. Right. Uh, it would make more sense if it was about her. And so this is sort of meant to be a, a setup of, you know, her, her deception. Mm-hmm. But then it's about Rachel and Rachel never really comes up again. Yeah. Except when she, when she dies. Right. Thing that I was looking most at for this one was this 
I was really confused about what the household gods were. I thought it was it was a typo and it was household goods, but it's actually mm. household gods, yeah. also called teraphim. When I looked into this, it's not 100% clear what these were. They definitely were sort of these cult objects that people kept and had a lot of meaning and value to them. Mm-hmm. There's an idea that they, they could have been depictions of sort of ancestors that like in Chinese culture, they treat them as in a way spiritual. Yeah. Uh, also, there's idea that they're just images of Yahweh kept around as, as something to pray to. But some rab- rabbinic literature understands them to be the heads of slaughtered firstborn that oh. were mummified oh, that's cool, and though. spiced that they kept around as cult objects and hung on their wall like trophies, basically. Okay. And, Did Rachel want to take those? Yeah, it's pretty wild. And I don't know how she was sitting on because it seemed like it'd be pretty big. But there's was evidence found of this when they excava- uh, excavated Jericho. No way. They found evidence that there were these heads that might have been mummified and collected. Dang. Well, and that brings me to another point is like, it seems like the whoever wrote this maybe should have possibly condemned Laban for having these at all, but they never say anything about this being a negative thing. It's just, give me my shrunken heads back. All right. So that happens. And then Jacob wants to make amends with Esau. He knows Esau is going to meet him and he hears that Esau has a bunch of men gathered. And he's terrified. He thinks Esau is coming to kill him. So he sends groups ahead and he splits up his groups so that Esau kills one of them. The other ones can escape. And then he sends them with gifts to Esau to appease him. And then it just sort of does this random cutaway where Jacob goes and he wrestles with this man who it turns out is the angel of God. Mm-hmm. And he beats the God. He beats God in this wrestling match and he holds him down until God begs him to let him go. Mm-hmm. And he forces him to give him a blessing. <laughs> yeah, okay. This was so wild to me when I read it because this was taught to me as being an angel, not as being God itself. But when you read the version that we're reading, it doesn't say angel at all. At first it calls him a man and then it later calls him God. Yeah. So he, if I'm to understand, Jacob is wrestling God himself and wins. And also God kicks him in the hip or whatever and throws out his hip. Yeah. Even if it is an angel, it seems that the the rabbinic tradition certainly understands this as God himself mm-hmm. that embodied himself as a man. Even if it was an angel, when Abraham and Lot meet angels, they bow down in front of them and bring them into their house and feed them. And for some reason, Jacob sees this angel and decides there ain't room enough in this town for the both of us. <laughs> like, <laughs> Even if it wasn't an angel, yeah. Why are you just out in the desert wrestling random men? Sounds like the life. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Uh, used to be a wrestler. Yeah. So, yeah, God apparently is a sore loser and decides to cripple Jacob (laughs) when this happens. But he does give him a blessing, and he renames him Israel. The name doesn't seem to stick because they keep switching back and forth between the name Israel and Jacob. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to look into what some of the explanations that Christians had for how he manages to beat God in a wrestling match. I love to watch Christians do these mental gymnastics. Oh, yeah. Me too. So one of them I have is, so God gives up his divine powers to do this and become man, make it a fair fight in the same way that Jesus does, which is why he's able to be killed on the cross and stuff, which still doesn't make sense because they're both humans and it's an equal fight. I still think God embodied as man should win. Yeah. Like he may not have divine powers, but he certainly should be able to beat a normal dude in a wrestling match. You would think his technique would be godlike still. Right. 
So still seems like BS. Another one I found is that he wants to show Jacob. It's meant to, to teach Jacob something. It's like. Right. Like, look how much you've grown. Yeah. That's yeah. the one I found is sort of this piece toughened up or something. But if that's the case. Why does he pop his freaking hip out? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is just. I guess it's maybe like, oh, you've grown so much, but I'm still God. There's your hip. (laughs) Yeah, this is to me just screams mythology again. Yep. All right. Do you want to wrap it there and then start next week with the rape of Dina? Yeah, we can do that. All right. Bye, y'all. Later. Later.